Good to go? All right, here we go. Hey, you guys can grab a Bible and you can go to Nehemiah chapter 5. That's where we're going to be at this morning. If you guys don't know me, my name is Greg. I am, uh, have the privilege of being the pastor here at Outpost. And uh, again, a reminder, the church is a what? It's not a... This is the Outpost. We're just the people who get to hang out in it. And I'm glad you guys are here. So if we've never met, please come introduce yourself. I'd love to meet you. I don't always get to meet everybody, but I'd love to meet you. And uh, I'm glad you got invited or you're visiting. And for all of you who are members, welcome back. Love you. It's good to hang out with you guys. Um, so, hey, look, uh, this past weekend, Bonnie and I went up to the mountains to celebrate our 12th anniversary. What's up? She's not here this morning because her kids are sick. And, uh, but, man, I am so, I'll, I'll, I'll brag about her while she's not here because she would hate it if she was here and I was doing it. That woman is amazing. Uh, you guys, if you know Bonnie, you know that she's the best thing about the Brooks family. So... Uh, love that gal. She has shown me God's goodness and kindness and grace in the gospel more than anybody other than Jesus and his word. So love that gal. Husbands, love your, love your brides. Um, while we were up there, the trees have started to turn. They're all yellow up there, right? So who's got their, who got a latte this morning? Ladies, did you guys get a latte? Anybody get their mixed drinks? No? Hey, I'm just going to be completely honest, all right? My name is Greg, and I'm recovering from loving uh, spice lattes and things like that, okay? You say, hi, Greg. Hi, Greg. Yes, okay, yes. I'm very proud of my addiction to uh, lattes. I love them, okay? And I'm still a man. But being up there, uh, it just reminded me the holidays are coming, and this is my favorite time of the year. I love the holidays, which reminds me of uh, a classic holiday movie, uh, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And... Uh, <laughs> In Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, I'm going to tell you why I'm mentioning this movie, okay? That's my, that was my way of getting to tell you this. Uh, in, in the movie, the, there's these, uh, it's going to sound really strange if you don't know anything about Harry Potter. There's a bunch of these little magic kids at a magic school, and they're doing this little competition with one another, and uh, there's a competition they have to do. All their, uh, each one of the people competing um, have a person who they love or they like or whatever is close to them taken from them in the middle of the night. I know, crazy, right? Uh, and the, they're taken and they're put underneath a lake. They're in the bottom of a lake. And so each of these guys have to figure out what's going on. They got to, you know, figure out ways to be able to swim underwater and stay under there for an hour to go rescue them. Okay? You with me? Okay. Everyone who knows the Harry Potter story, you're like, come on, Greg, you could do better than this. Um, and so the main character, Harry Potter, has to go down there and rescue uh, some friends. And one of them is his best friend, uh, or two of his best friends are down there, but he can only take one. And so the, the person coming to get his other best friend doesn't come. So he decides to go ahead and risk it and try to take both. And so he grabs both of them. He's trying to swim out. And as he's swimming out at the end, the, th the little magic thing that he has to keep him underwater runs out. And so now he's starting to drown. And not only is he starting to drown, but these other little creatures are pulling him down. So at the last second, he, with all of his strength, pushes them up so they can make it to the surface. And then he gets pulled down. You hear that? He presses them up, and in pressing them up, it pushes him down, and he's going down to drown and die. Now, eventually he remembers some magic spell, waves his wand under the water, comes out. All right, the whole end of the story is Harry Potter wins. All right, you got it? All right, so I just ruined it for you. Great holiday movie. But I tell you that story because I want to, today we're talking about oppression, okay? Oppression. If you break down the word oppression, op means against, and then press comes from a Sanskrit word, which means to strike. And usually when you think of oppression, it's a pushing down of others for the sake of ourself. And I tell you that story because 
In this Harry Potter story, he's a picture of something different, oppressing somebody else up at the detriment of himself. And so we're going to be looking at oppression this morning. And oppression is a problem. And it's been a problem since the very beginning of our human existence. It's always been a problem. John 12, Jesus tells us, he says that the poor you will always have among you. He's saying that oppression, not only has it always been a part, it always will be a part of our human experience. That every one of you have either oppressed or been oppressed in some way. We're going to talk about that this morning. But we've got to ask ourselves, how did oppression begin? Where did it start? Well, it started in the heart of a man named Adam and a woman named Eve in a place called the Garden of Eden, okay? And it's there that God, in his infinite love for us and wisdom, decided to give humanity a choice. And this is extremely important. Listen to me. God gives us a choice. And the choice is either to trust God or reject God. That's the choice. It's that simple. Choose to trust God or reject God. The consequences of the former would be joy and peace and blessing. The consequences of the latter would be death, destruction, and oppression if we reject God. Now, many of you guys know that Adam and Eve, they made the same choice that all of us make. They chose to do what was good for them rather than what was God's good. You hear that? They chose to press down on the truth of God to elevate themselves. And then oppression began, began. And oppression began first spiritually in their heart, which is the greatest form of oppression. We're going to talk about this. But it was soon after this, it leads to physical oppression. Guys, listen to me. Spiritual oppression is always the source that leads to physical oppression. In the next generation, their kids, they had two boys, all right? I've got two little boys, and sometimes I can see this happen, but not, hopefully never to this level. But they have two boys, Cain and Abel. You guys know the story? What does Cain do to Abel? He doesn't just kill his brother. He murders his brother out of pride. Cain chose what he believed to be the greatest good for himself rather than honoring and respecting the greatest good that God had for him and his brother. And it leads him to a physical oppression of murder to kill his brother Abel. Okay, and so here is the definition we have this morning of oppression that we're going we're gonna to operate on. Oppression is a serving of self at the cost of others, okay? Oppression is the serving of self at the cost of others. This is going to be tough this morning. What, what is the opposite of that, of oppression? Love. What's love? Is love a feeling? Is, that, is it butterflies down in the tum-tum? Is it, is it spice lattes? Love is pressing others up even at the cost of ourself. That's what love is. Do you hear that? Even when I don't feel like it, I press up for others. I lift up others. I, I free others even at a cost to myself. So oppression, first and foremost, guys, is a spiritual issue. It's an issue of the heart. It's rooted deep down in the belief you have about yourself and the belief you have about the people around you. That's here in the church, that's in your jobs and in your community. It's rooted deep in our heart. That's what makes oppression such a hard thing to tackle. Think about it. It's not just, it's not a political party. It's not a nation. It's not a church. It's not a company. Oppression 
It's something that is in the heart of a person. And it's not just the hearts of the people out there. It's in my heart, guys. Oppression is something that begins in your heart. That's why it's hard to tackle, right? We get frustrated with groups of people, but it's the individual and it begins in us. That's where it starts. And so this morning, we're, we've been in a series where we're following the story of Nehemiah. And it has been awesome up to this point. Men and women have the mind to work, building a wall, getting after it. It's like, it's awesome, right? In one hand, they got a hammer. In the other hand, they have a sword. And they're just getting after it. Every guy's like, it's the dream. If I could go to work and have a pistol in one hand and a wrench in the other, right? Just like at every given moment, ready to go, okay? And uh, in Wyoming, that's really close to possible, but... But today in chapter 5, we're going to read about oppression. And it's not oppression from the outside. We're going to read about oppression that's happening on the inside. It's not about what's happening outside of these walls. We're going to do a little family dealing of what's going on inside of the walls. And so that's why this morning's going to be tough. It's my hope that God, and I'm, listen, I was thinking about how I want to go through this. And I'm going to be careful not to do what I typically do, which is yell a lot. And I want God's word to really just work on us. So I want you to listen. Let your ears perk up. And I'm going to pray that they do before we go into this. But today, my, my hope is that, like I'm already feeling in my life, that in your life, we feel a conviction about the ways that we are oppressing one another in this room and in the Big C Church of Cody before we go out and try to save other people and free the oppressed out there. You hear me? Because the world doesn't care about what we do out there when they come in here and they see that we're just like them. Okay? All right, so that's what I'm praying for today. We're going to look at it in three ways. We're gonna first, here's the breakdown for all of you who love points. I'm sorry for all of you um, who just hate that I don't ever stick to these. So this is just a, this is a promise that's not going to be fulfilled. All right? Um, we're going to talk about the problem of oppression. We're going to talk about a proper response to oppression. And then we're going to talk about a proper example that Nehemiah is and what we can be, okay, in this. But let me pray for us before we open up to Nehemiah 5, verse 1. Lord Jesus, I know that you are the great emancipator. And you came not to deal with the abortion issue. You didn't come to free nations. You didn't come to free the poor. You came to free the spiritually oppressed because you knew that if you could free our hearts, you could free the world. So Jesus, I want to thank you when I was 15 years old, you stepped into my life to free me. And I thank you every day that you carry me along by your good grace and kindness to free me even more. I pray for us in this room that our hearts would be open, that we, our ears would be open, and regardless of how they feel about me or the church, that God, we just be willing to for a moment consider what you want in our heart and the way that we're treating one another. That may Maybe today, Lord, you could just help us by your spirit to be a little more free. And um, may this community be more purified after today. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, go Nehemiah 5. All right, if you've got an index finger, use it. Put it on that spot. Let's follow along. If not, it'll be on the screen. But I always encourage you guys to have a Bible. All right? Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Remember, they're in the midst of building a wall right now. There were also those 
who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Verse four, and there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. All right, the problem of oppression. So Nehemiah records a great outcry, and then there's three things that are listed in this section in one through five, okay? Two, three, and four, or two, three, four, and five, that share, here are the problems. And there's an expectation that you, the reader, who's been reading through Nehemiah, and you've read through Nehemiah one through four, there's an expectation that you will be appalled by what's happening. Now, I just read that to you, and some of you are going, uh, not quite as appalled, okay? But there's an expectation there, and I want you to understand the expectation, or just the fact of having expectation. I think it's, it's getting kind of hot and feeding back a little bit, Zach. Um, I want you to understand this, and I also want you to understand it's not just an expectation that you should have, that you should go, man, I agree with that outcry. It's also an expectation that God has. So in Isaiah chapter 5, I want to show you how God has expectations that when good is given, that good will, will flourish and good will, will happen in response, okay? So Isaiah chapter 5, I want to read this to you. It's going to be on the screen. But listen to this. We're talking about expectation of what God does something, what he kind of expects to happen. And I think you expect the same. Nehemiah, uh, this is Isaiah 5. It says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. God's about to tell you a story. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Do you hear what's happened? Got a fertile hill. Got everything ready. It's going to be beautiful. Everything's in a row, and it yields wild grapes. Verse 3, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. He says this, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? What are we seeing? There's a missed expectation. You see that? God is saying, hey, what else could I have done for you? What else could I have done for this vineyard? It should produce something, and it didn't produce it. How many of you in this room, if, God, if you knew that Jesus had a vineyard, right? And he was producing these grapes, and he was making wine, you'd be like, that wine's got to be good. Anybody in this room? Okay, I know y'all are a bunch of Baptist non-wine drinkers, but I would be buying that stuff. I'm like, it has got to be good. And then you, you pop the cork, you go to drink it, and you're just like, what is this? Verse 5. And now, and now, listen, this is what God says. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briar, briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. It's a warning. All right, so what is he talking about? Well, he explains it, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts 
is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. I think what we need to understand is our, our God is a God who's looking for peace and justice and righteousness. He's not looking for an outcry. Oppression is always the result of rebelling against God, not a result of obedience to God. When God makes a garden, makes goodness, it's meant to bring great, good grapes. And so when we're looking at this in Nehemiah chapter 5, the expectation is when you are reading through this Nehemiah 1 through 4, you're supposed to go, man, this is, a, this is awesome. They're side by side. The people had a, a mind to work. They're doing great things. So then when you get to Nehemiah 5, 1 through 5, you just go, are you kidding me? After all you're doing to prevent, to, to fight against the oppression out there, the problem's not out there. What does he say the problem is? The problem's in here. You guys are not good grapes. I'm not talking about, he's talking about the people of Nehemiah. You're not good grapes. There's an expectation that they, there's an irony here. That God, who showed love to them, He's given them freedom, who rescued them from slavery, he brought them to this land, who's unified them around rebuilding the temple and the wall, and they're seeing so much success in doing it. There's kind of this expectation that they're going to love one another, they're going to forgive one another, they're going to free one another. And what are they doing? Let's look at it. In verse 2, in the midst of rebuilding the wall, there's some of the things that are happening. These people are hindered from their ability to feed their children. Okay? Something that a lot of us care about in this room is feeding our kids. Because of all the work they're trying to do to the building, to the, to, the, to the facility of the city, they can't feed their kids, okay? It gets worse. That compounds into verse 3. Not only that, but there was a bad harvest that year. So these guys are having to mortgage their property to other people. Who are they mortgaging their property to? Other Jews. So other Jews who've got the money and got the ability, sorry, I'm yelling, but they've got the ability, right? To feed others, they're okay, they're safe. They see their friends are caught between a rock and a hard place, and they take advantage of that and charge interest on top of it. Yeah, I'll give you the food, but you're going to pay me 10% on this. And then it gets even worse. It compounds again, okay? Due to the mortgages, the bad harvest, the continued work on the wall, the king's tax, the people are vulnerable to enslavement. And they go, oh, you, you actually can't pay me the 10% or anything? Well, then I'll take your daughter. Do you hear this? It'd be like me and Bonnie are, were in such a bad place that I have to sell Olivia, and it's for a period of time, sell Olivia for a period of time to pay off a debt to feed the rest of my kids. Do you hear that? This is real life. This is not some felt board fictional story. This is real life. This is the way the rest of the world lives. I'm sorry, America. This is not the way it is here, but in other parts of the world, this is exactly how it is. Little girls sold into sex slavery because their parents need some money. It's happening today. It's happening right now. But here's the worst part. It's Jews doing it to Jews. It's in the family. They're doing it to each other. So how should we feel? How, how should we respond to this? Right? We should be outraged. We should be outraged. Before we get to that, I want to I tell you, this is not just what's happening in Nehemiah's day. Uh, 420 years later, this happens in Jesus' day. They do the same thing. It happens with uh, money changers. You guys probably heard of the money changers. Remember, Jesus flipped some tables in the temple. You guys remember that? You know what the money changers were? 
They were the exchange guys. They were the money uh, currency exchange people. Okay? Okay? And so this ha almost happened to us in Mexico where we almost got ripped off, right? Um, basically what was happening was you couldn't come to the temple and donate Roman coins in your donation to the temple tax or to, just to the temple to, get, to worship God with. You couldn't bring Roman money. All right? It was kind of seen as it just wasn't good. So what you had to do is you had to go and exchange it, the Roman currency, for some Jewish currency. But in the process, these men would rip off other, their brothers and their sisters. They would rip them off and take off a bigger cut, and they would lie about it, or they would have the wrong weights. And they would do this while people are on their way to worship God. You hear that? So who are they stealing from? They're stealing from the Lord. They're stealing from these people, their brothers. Not only that, they're under a Roman oppression. When I went to Israel, you can really begin to see the Roman oppression, like what it would have been like. It was atrocious. It was horrible, right? And so just imagine, the Jews hated the Romans. They just absolutely hated them. But imagine hating the Romans, and they're taxing you like crazy. And when you go to go pay the tax, and you see behind the, the, the window, it's not a Roman. Sometimes it was who? It was Jews. If you've seen The Chosen, you can see how angry those guys could get. And I think it's a good picture. They're watching their, their brothers, the Jews, take the tax, and not only take the tax, but rip off their fellow brothers and sisters. Guys, this kind of stuff happens today. We do this to each other. Here in the U.S., we have, there's a lots of forms of oppression. I'm going to mention a couple. And look, some of you are going to get triggered. Just calm down for a hot second. You're going to get triggered, and I just want you to calm down for a hot second. Uh, I, I really believe that the this, this student loan thing is a form of oppression in our country. Let me, let me tell you, all right, before you think I'm wanting all of you to pay off everyone's student loans, just calm down for a second. Listen to me. Uh, I, have, I was told my entire life that I have to go to college. I have to go or else I will not have a life. And you told all your kids they have to go to college or they will not have a life. But most of us, we couldn't afford to go to college can't afford to do it. But there's no life unless we go to college. Okay, so we go to college. And at the same time that I was in high school, guess what kind of emails and messages I was getting all the time? Not only was I supposed to go to college, but there were some companies that were willing to loan me money for four years that I didn't have to pay for four years. And when I got out and I got that job that was available to me and all my college friends that was going to pay me crazy money, when I got out, uh, then I could start paying it, plus the interest. And then now I have a lot of friends who are in divorces because they're in such dire straits because of bad financial discipleship that they were told they had to buy a house with 30-year mortgage. They had to go to college and take out $50,000 in debt and pay that. And then 10 years into their marriage, they've got these kids they're trying to feed, and their, their whole family's under this oppression of and slavery to men who are making billions of dollars off of these kids. They forced to get this. Do you understand? It's a form of oppression. We got kids who are living in oppression in the foster care system right now. We've got we've got friends of ours who have to buy medication, life-saving medication that really costs fifteen dollars that they're being charged five hundred dollars for, because they're in a rock and a hard place. And if they don't take this, they'll die. So, if, I, if you're big pharma, you can why don't we just charge up on this stuff, right? You hear? And so men walk away with billions while others are taken advantage of, because things began to add up. And now they're losing everything. You hear this? It's the reason why 45 to 55-year-old white men are the number one people killing themselves in our country. Because you convince them 
right? They got to go to college. They got to do all this stuff. And they're carrying the whole weight of the world on their shoulders and they can't make it. Do you hear me? We're living in the state, number one state in the country for killing ourselves. It's not just teenagers. So there's forms of oppression. So I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees, though. I I mentioned all those, but those are all out there. And yes, we should be involved. There's so many more. The 60 million aborted lives. There's so many more things we could talk about, but that's not the problem. The biggest oppression that exists, and some of you agree and some of you won't, is your oppression of sin. The sin has your number. And it is pressing you down. And by your choice, it is continuing to kill you. And it's an oppression of pride. To put it in the language you've already used, it's an enslavement to the idea that your good is better than God's good for you. Okay? And to make it even simpler, it's basically to say this, guys, the greatest oppression is you don't know God. The greatest oppression in this whole world is that we don't know God. And that God is the definition of the greatest good that can be done. The WWJD bracelets were good, right? What would Jesus do? It's a good question. Because whatever Jesus does is always the greatest thing to be done. Always. And we, when we do not fear the Lord, okay, when we don't fear him, we don't want to follow his ways. And we don't follow his ways, it always leads to oppression of one another. And so, we, but here's the thing, we have somebody else, so we don't trust God, we don't trust him, but what's crazy is Jesus is the greatest form, or greatest picture of the opposite of oppression, right? Love, greatest picture. At great detriment to Jesus' self, he took on all of our sin oppression to free us, all in one act, a 33-year-old man. You hear me? How insane is that? Right? I'm 32. And I'm going, that's crazy. He took it on himself. Okay? So this brings me to the point of the first point. When God loves, forgives, and restores, he expects that we will love, forgive, and restore. Israel was loved by God, forgiven for the rebellion, and miraculously restored to the land of God's promise. Yet they hated one another. They charged interest against one another. They enslaved one another. It's a horrible irony. But an even worse and more horrible irony is that in this room with you guys, many of you say that you are loved by God and that you're a Christian, that you have been forgiven for all your sin, that you have been miraculously restored, and yet you will not forgive your brothers and sisters. And you are not interested in restoring through discipleship anybody in this city or anybody in this community. That is the most horrific irony, and the world knows it and they see it. And so, how horribly ironic it is it that when you find a group of people who are loved and forgiven, who say that they're loved and forgiven, they sing songs and they say hallelujah about the forgiveness of God, yet they turn to one another in this room and won't forgive each other. They won't extend the forgiveness. That should lead us to frustration. But not just with frustration with the other people, with frustration with myself. How can I worship God and say that I'm forgiven and praise him for that, but not yet forgive my brothers and sisters in this room? So what's the proper response? We talked about the problem. The problem, and I think it's the biggest problem in the Church of Cody, and it's the biggest problem in Outpost, and I see it every day. I deal with it in my emails every day. Guys, we're not 
willing to reconcile. So we're going to move on to a proper response, but let me just say this one thing before I move on. Nobody cares about what you post about on Facebook, about all that's going on in the world, if in this room with the people who agree with you that you should be forgiving and reconciling with one another, you're not willing to do it. So why don't we click pause on all the posting, and let's see what a good response to that would be with each other, all right? Verse 6. Here's Nehemiah's response. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel within myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we're able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. That's a proper response. The proper response, guys, if you're a Nehemiah, is to step up and to speak out. Nehemiah gathered the leaders of the oppressed to call out their ironic sin. How could those who are slaves, freed by God, enslave their brothers? Guys, and here gathered with you, allow me just to be a little bit of a Nehemiah in your lives. How can you call yourselves Christians because you have been forgiven of all your sin and by the death of Jesus, but be unwilling to forgive others, especially other Christians? This is the greatest form of oppression in the church. that we are unwilling to forgive and reconcile. Matthew 6, 14 to 15, Jesus affirms this. Listen to what Jesus says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is not saying that if you're a Christian and you're unwilling to forgive, that you're going to lose your salvation. What it's saying is, you may never have been saved to begin with. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Verse 9 of Nehemiah. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of the enemies? It comes back to, do you know God? This unforgiveness and tearing at one another in the body of Christ is the reason people don't taste and see the Lord is good. They bite into you and find you're not sweet grapes, you're wild. And just as wild as the world. We have no fear and respect and trust and appreciation of God. Here's my point. The reason there are problems in the world and in the church is because deep down we don't fear God. We don't actually believe in him. It's easy to attend a church and look like you do. It's much harder to actually do and forgive some of the worst things that have ever happened to you. So when you fear God... You'll trust his ways. When you trust his ways, you'll become somebody like Jesus. When you don't, you'll become an oppressor. And it always happens. It always happens when there's no fear in God in a land. Why do you think that the communist countries are atheist countries? They don't want there to be any fear of God. They don't want there to be any fear of God. They want there only to be fear of men. And what has killed more people in history than communism? Nothing. Moreover, 
I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting for them. Let it all go. Give it back. Entrust it to the Lord. Return it to them. We call this goodness in the form of mercy. And what I love about this is that Nehemiah doesn't ask them to pray about it. You notice that? Nehemiah goes, y'all should really pray about this. Whether or not you want to keep taking interest in enslaving your brothers and sisters' children. He doesn't even ask for anybody else's counsel, which I'm sure some of you, if you're part of Outpost, you go, hold on a second, don't we? Aren't we supposed to get counselors, right? In the abundance of counselors, there is wisdom. He's like, I don't have to ask anybody. This is black and white. And so he doesn't ask them to pray about it. And I think that is so funny because a lot of times I hear people like, well, hold on a second, we should give people time to think about it, right? Because forgiving or letting it go or taking this step, we want people to feel it. Like we want for the forgiveness to be genuine, shouldn't they feel it? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we feel the forgiveness? What do you guys think? I say no. At the end of the day, you have been commanded to forgive. It is not about your feelings. And I don't want to be the, I'm yelling again. I don't want to be the pastor who's just like, there's a culture of this, of constantly telling people their feelings don't exist or don't matter. It's not true. God gave you feelings. The problem is your feelings are sometimes the things that are the most unreliable in your life. You devote daily when you feel like it. You pursue relationally when you feel like it. You live authentically when you feel like it. You admonish faithfully when you feel like it. You counsel biblically when you feel like it. And you gauge missionally when you feel like it. Guys, you serve when you feel like it. You give when you feel like it. You have made a God of your feelings. And Nehemiah is saying, I don't care how you feel. There's one God. And our God's the God who frees the oppressed and you're oppressing others. There is nothing to do with your feelings anymore. Free them. Some of you are holding chains on people that you're unwilling to forgive. And you're waiting for your, if you're going to wait till your feelings get in order, I promise you, you'll never forgive them. And here's the truth I know, that when you do go to forgive those people and you extend the forgiveness, one day your feelings aren't going to feel like it again, right? You're going to remember what they did to you and you're just going to be mad and angry. What do you do in that moment? In that moment, you remember your commitment to forgive. Because it's not about your feelings. It's about obedience to a God that we trust who's the God of setting people free. So it's something that we're called to do. And it's something that we're called to do now. Don't make a God of your feelings. Verse 39 of Luke 22. I want to I show you a picture of when God didn't feel like doing something. A couple weeks ago, I sat in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I got to see olive trees kind of all over the country, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, what's amazing about the olive trees around there, they're all twisted and gnarled. They're just, just completely mangled-looking olive trees. I don't know if this is on purpose or if it's connected to this. People like to make much of it, but I want to tell you there's something in this. Look at this. Luke 22, look at when Jesus really didn't want to do something. Then he came out and he went as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, this is the Garden of Gethsemane, 
Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What's the cup? It's it's, it's the cup of the wrath of God that was actually meant for you, that you are supposed to drink. And God is offering it to Jesus. And he's seeing, will Jesus drink the cup of God's wrath for you? And Jesus says, would you remove this cup from me? He doesn't want to do it. But look what he says. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not what I want. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. In being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Look, I've been in agony, but not that kind of agony. Jesus, even when he didn't feel like it, chose to press you into the arms of God at a great cost to himself. Jesus is not here to rip you off. He's here to set you free. Guys, you, you can't consider that enough. So now's the time, guys, for us in this room to really make a choice. Will you seek reconciliation today, today, with whoever you have sinned against and oppressed or who's oppressed you? Will you seek it with him? Will you forgive? Will you ask for forgiveness? Regardless of whether or not you feel like it, will you seek it because your God in heaven who rescued you sought it for you? This is what the people of Nehemiah's day say. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and empty. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Friends, I tell you, I love you. I really love every member of Outpost Community Church. And I love God's church. I pray that God would shake you out of it if you're not willing to follow Jesus in this way. That he gets you out of here. I, I don't care about your sin addictions as much as I care about are you willing to do the one thing that God was willing to do for you, which is forgive and seek forgiveness. I think we got a proper example in Nehemiah. Look at him. Moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. From the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Nehemiah is in the place of authority, but he knows who really is the authority, and it's God. 
And, and so he didn't take advantage of what he deserved. He didn't try to press in on the people. He didn't seek his own advantage. Look what he does. I also persevered in the work on th- this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. He kept on working. He didn't ask others to work and wouldn't do it instead. He was willing to go and do it. And then it says, moreover, there was at my table 150 men, about 150 people in here, Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Life and oppression, y'all, is cr- it's, it's hard enough to then turn around and come to the place where the church gathers and yet we sit on opposite sides from each other because we don't want to be honest and we don't want to forgive and we don't want to care for one another. It's hard enough to build the wall. Why behind the wall would we bring more oppression? Right? And look what Nehemiah said. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. I love that Nehemiah is like, I don't even care what y'all think. My reward is with God and I'm going to trust him. I'm going to do this. Friends, do not wait until somebody around you goes first. Be a Nehemiah who goes first and trust that God will reward you, that he loves you because you're following in his footsteps and there's always freedom and reward in following in the way of Jesus. He says in John 14, 21 that he will reveal himself to you when you walk in obedience to him. But you will never trust him and you'll never follow him and you'll never do the hardest things in the world. Two hardest things is a, I think to do as a Christian, number one, confess our sin and two is to forgive those who've hurt us. And both of those are tied to our heart. But Nehemiah is a great example. I want to tell you about some other examples, okay? I, I don't want to be a guy who doesn't do the same. So we're talking about freedom. My, one of my friends, Courtney, she, uh, she was told, we worked together, she was told uh, she, she wanted to go into international missions. But with the people that we were around, to be able to go into international missions, you had to have a four-year degree. So she had to go get a bachelor's degree. It was mandatory. So she goes to get a, man- a, a bachelor's degree. But... She can't afford it. She can't afford to do it. And so she takes out loans to be able to get this four-year degree to go on missions to serve God. Seems like a good thing. Let's make the sacrifice. Well, she gets out, and she has all this college debt. Guess what the missions agency tells her? You have this college debt. We can't send you into the mission field while you have college debt. Pay that off first, and then you can go. And so what ends up happening is my friends down in Florida, Bonnie and I, we're already giving locally to the local church where we're at because we're Christians and that's what we do. We live generously. So we're giving locally and, but we hear what's going on with her and we said, okay, you know what? This is crazy. We got to do something about this. So Bonnie and I scratched out a little extra money. Listen, combined when we were working at this place, we were making combined 18000 a year and I was going to college myself. And we scratched out some money. We said, look, we're going to, and we, we sent her a message. We said, hey, we're sending you this to pay off your college debt. We want you in the mission field. We want you to be able to do this. I'm not trying to brag, and I'm not going to lose any rewards in heaven. I'm trying to tell you guys, this is the way the church lives, helping free our friends from oppression. That's one way. Uh, you could, there's other ways where we have in our community, like we're trying to do already. It's like there's kids in foster care. And Bonnie and I, we're able to take 12 kids into our house, one for three years who we love dearly, and I talk to you still weekly. I love them. And we're being a part of jumping in. And right now, the, the foster care system should not be the people. The government should not be the ones trying to rescue the widows and the orphans. Who should it be? The church, the people who follow, follow in the way of Jesus. 
But guys, we can't get to that because we're not willing to deal with our own stuff. I've got a friend in this town. I found out that he had some hurt with me. And uh, Acts 24, 16, I memorized says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. And so I reached out and said, hey, man, can we meet? I hear you've got some hurt with me, and I'd love to sit with you. So me and Jake, we went and had lunch with this guy. We sat down, a young man. And I asked for forgiveness with my brother, and my brother extended grace and forgiveness to me. And then he asked for forgiveness from me, and I extended grace and forgiveness from him. And it was a beautiful moment. I texted him this morning, and we're good. Such a great thing. That's what we do. When we find out, we shoot the text, let's deal with this, and we get it done. But we're also people who not only do that, when I was in Israel, our guide, uh, our guide is a Jew, and his parents were Holocaust survivors. And so when they took us to the Holocaust memorial in Israel, okay, and I can't remember the Jewish name for it, and we're sitting there in Israel, he brings us in, and he tells us the story of how his mom and his dad survived, okay? His mom was a baby, and his, and his grandmother was 19 years old. And they're getting put on these train cars, these cattle cars, to be shipped off to just decimate the Jews. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody has any clue. But there's a guy named Raoul Wallenberg, okay? And in Hungary, Raoul Wallenberg was going out and giving out transportation papers so people could cross international lines to go into other countries, go into Sweden. And so he could see something was going on. And our friend Ron, who was our guide, his grandmother for some reason, at 19 years old, realized there's something not quite, quite right about getting on a cattle cart and going to places where they don't know where they're going. And Raul would run up to these carts, jump on the carts, and hand these papers to hands that were sticking out of the boxcars while all the military uh, Germans were around, the Nazis were around. And whatever hands would get a paper... They would, they would open the doors, go in, grab those people, pull them out, and let them go. For some reason, the Nazis felt like, well, if you've got transportation papers, we'll honor that. This guy was jumping on the carts. And so when we come into this, into this uh, place, this uh, memorial, there's 14,000 trees planted at this memorial, and they're dedicated to the angels. And the angels are all those people who risked their lives to save Jews during World War II genocide. And one of the first trees you see when you go in there is this beautiful tree. And at the bottom it says, Raoul Wallenberg. It's the man who saved his grandmother and his mother. That's one of the first trees. And Ron just wept. Because Raoul was a Nehemiah. He was somebody who stepped up, spoke out, to free the press. And when you go in there, there's a dedication to him. He saved thousands of Jews. That's what the church is called to be, guys. But we'll never get to that if we don't free one another first and extend love and kindness and grace to one another. Another person you guys all know, a great example of this is Corey Tim Boom. Corey was somebody who was saving the Jews during World War II and eventually gets caught, and her and her sister are sent to a camp, and her sister is killed by a, a Nazi officer. And she sees this man, never forgets his face. Well, later, she's teaching on forgiveness, and she's sharing in a church. And I'm, I'm keeping this short for you, because many of you know this. And the man who killed her sister comes walking into the room. And she sees this man, and she sees him coming, and all she feels in her heart, what she feels is anger and hatred for this guy. 
And he comes up to her and says, Corey, will you please forgive me? And everything in her said no. But then something came into her brain which said this. I read to you earlier, Matthew 6. If I do not forgive him, my Father in heaven will not forgive me. And she extended free forgiveness there. And guess who was freed? Was it that man? Corey was freed. Some of you in the room are going, Greg, I, I tell you that story because some of you are going, man, Greg, you don't know what happened to me. You don't know what they did to me. And I say, it doesn't matter. You don't realize what you did to Christ. And yet he forgave you of a lifetime's worth of sin. Before you were born, he chose you. And he to chose to drink that cup. And in agony, he took it for you. He is the greatest example we've got. And in Philippians 2, it says, this is for all of you guys before you leave. Listen to this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, church, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, pressing down on others, but also look to the interests of others, lifting them up. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's your next step. If you call on that Jesus, regardless of how you feel today, here's the command. Leave today and make one of your first priorities to text or to call, reach out to whoever you need to seek forgiveness from or you need to forgive. And today, forgive them. And if they're in this body, take them downstairs, go outside, go to your car, and have a conversation and reconcile. Because the world doesn't care what we do when we leave here, if in here, we're just like the world. Father, I pray for your friends here. You call us your friends because you laid down your life for us. And I pray for myself, Lord, reveal in my heart and reveal my friend's heart, where are we holding on to unforgiveness? Where are we oppressing ourselves and our brothers and sisters? Because we're choosing our good rather than trusting that you're good and your ways are better. Spirit of God, I pray that you would purify us today. Purify your church. Help us fear your name. We need your help. Help us understand. Help us understand.